Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here now approaching our 29th anniversary. Money Talk is a broadcast about actually the, the whole world of financial and investment planning because you always determine the agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen, on, may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download podcasts of our previous shows. You can also do that by going to the free app SoundCloud. And this Thursday after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. I was reviewing, as I do every Saturday, returns on the financial market on a year-to-date basis, at least this deeply into the year I do that. And I, I, again, as you know, if you're a regular listener, I use ETFs where they're available rather than the direct indexes, which you can't purchase. So I try to use them from different providers because I'm not recommending any particular investment. But the Vanguard total stock market, that would be U.S. total stock market year to date, up 21.09%. The SPY, which is the S&P 500, up 21.68%. You might want to sit down for this one. The ONEQ, which is a Fidelity ETF for the NASDAQ, is up a breathtaking 39.63%. International stocks are having a good year, but certainly lagging U.S. as they have done for quite some time. I'm looking at the Vanguard XUS ETF on a year-to-date basis through yesterday up at 10.58%. As you would imagine, the bond market has lagged that, but actually has come into positive territory recently. The AG, AGG, which is an iShares ETF, which tries to match the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index, has a total return of 2.85%. The largest bond fund, as my understanding, is the BND, the Vanguard Bond ETF, up 2.88%. And then gold has had an excellent year. Through yesterday, I used the IAU. You may use the GLD. Uh, The IAU has a slightly lower expense ratio. Year-to-date, up 9.57. I looked at SLV for silver because I noticed in today's Wall Street Journal that silver really took it hard last week, and the SLV has a year-to-date return of a minus 4.18%. So when you think that through, the difference between 9.57 on gold and minus 4.18 on silver, that's a heck of a, a heck of a divergence or a spread, because I know sometimes here on Money Talk, people will ask me about whether I should buy gold and or silver. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. The rules here are I take today's calls first, then today's text second, then any other previous text that I've not answered fully, and then I do the hated, hated bloviation, which I'm getting ready to do right now. So I'll give you those numbers one more time. 512-836-0590. That ought to scare you. So it, 
At this point in the year, today's the 9th of December, there are some year-end things to consider for investors, particularly around taxes if you own mutual funds or exchange-traded funds in non-retirement accounts, what, what I call taxable accounts, some people call brokerage accounts. And I guess the first thing is, I misspoke last week about the wash sale rule in terms of the number of days, so I want to come back over that. The wash sale rule says that if you have a security in which you have a loss and you buy the same security within 30 days before you sell the one for a loss or within 30 days after you sell the one for a loss, you cannot take that loss against any other gains or modestly against your income. That's called the wash sale rule. And I'm getting covered up with uh, emails from various asset managers about this is the year to take advantage of it. And I happen to agree with them, uh, particularly with bond funds, because uh, if you owned a bond fund, you may well have a loss. And you may say, well, Carl, my bond fund is worth more than what I paid for it. And I'm not surprised by that. But your bond fund pays dividends. Of course, it's accumulated interest, but pays what are called dividends typically every month. And most people, I think quite wisely, reinvest those dividends. And if their capital gains those as well. And so slowly over time, kind of like watching paint dry, you can have your cost basis go up by those by those reinvestments. That's called a, your adjusted basis. You take that phenomenon, which happens all the time, and you add it to a bad bond year like last year and a pretty much flat year this year, you probably ought to go to your statement and look at what your adjusted basis is. Because what I'm observing is that a lot of people have losses on an adjusted basis per situation, and you could sell that bond fund and then create that taxable loss, take it against other distributed capital gains, and anything that's left you can carry forward and take $3,000 of that off of your your taxable income. Now, what do you do about that? Is is a, is an investment decision. Frankly, it's not a tax decision. So you could let's say your favorite bond fund is on an adjusted basis below below uh, you know above the current price. So you have a loss, and you're out of it for 30 days. Now, that's not the end of the world because typically bonds are not as volatile as stocks, for example. But there is market risk or what some people call opportunity cost, so that you could buy another similar bond fund and either keep that going forward or hold it until the 30-day period has lapsed, and then you can go back into the one that you picked originally. As I mentioned previously in previous weeks, our listener Ken said that it was his view that the IRS has never attempted to really say the kind of, I would say, define what is materially different. In other words, if you sold BND, the uh, Vanguard bond fund, and you bought AGG, the iShares Bloomberg Ag, would they be sufficiently different as to not get you in trouble with the wash sale rule? In his view, the way I understood his email, that would be just fine because the weightings of the various bonds could be different and you would avoid any problems with the wash sale rule. If you don't call or text, I'm going to go on and on and on about other tax-oriented investment decisions at the end of the year. In the meantime, call 512-836-0590. I will be back. 
You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon until 5 p.m. And when you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Gene, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi. Uh, Hi. I'm a retired teacher for Round Rock, yes. and I have money in, in there, and I have to draw that RMDs or whatever that is every year. Yes. And my husband worked for the state of Texas and also the state of Illinois, and he has two 503B plans. Uh-huh, yes. Yes. So where's the best place to move his money to? He passed away. Okay. So um, my understanding, because you are his beneficiary as his surviving spouse, if you wanted to, I'm going to answer your question, but if you wanted to, you could consolidate those two 403Bs into a Gene IRA rollover because he's deceased and you're his beneficiary. Also, you want to make sure, since you're older, if you're up for required minimum distributions, that you, that you have what I would call contingent or secondary beneficiaries. So if something were to happen to you, there'd be no confusion as to where the money goes. So if unless there's a reason to stay with those two plans, and I, I frankly don't know what the benefit of that would be, you probably would be well-suited to consolidate. So that's the first part. Second part is because 403Bs are more or less the same as 401Ks in the for-profit world, your husband and you as well have a menu of investment choices. So you can look at the statements and see how the money is invested. If you're satisfied with that, then you should open an account and you can use, let's just use some common names. Let's suppose that Illinois uses Fidelity Index Funds or Vanguard Index Funds or some or, or PIMCO Bond Funds, just for example. If they have publicly available funds, and they usually do in my experience, and you're satisfied with those, you could take the required minimum distributions and open a gene account with those required minimum distributions, and you could invest in those funds or funds very similar to those. So you could, if you want to do this yourself, you can open up with a broker-dealer that has access to all those other funds. So big ones are like Charles Schwab, where you can buy where you can buy Vanguard funds or Fidelity funds or, or any other kind of funds. And you could essentially replicate the type of asset allocation, the mix of funds that you have in your 403B and that your uh, former, your deceased husband has. The other thing you could do along the consolidation, if you choose, you could take your 403B, your husband's, and do a rollover into a gene IRA so you've gone from three accounts to one. You can keep the same funds and do the same thing I just said. And then when the required minimum distributions occur, 
you could then switch those over, pay the taxes, and switch those over to the gene account. Finally, the other thing you could do is if you don't need that all of that money because you have a te- you're a beneficiary, let's say, of the teacher's retirement system. If you don't need all of that money, you know you're going to pay income tax on those required minimum distributions. If you have what uh, is called philanthropic intent, if you regularly give money to your church or synagogue or to any other 501c qualified nonprofit social service organization, you can do something called a qualified charitable distribution. If you're over 70 and a half, you can have you can have a, your custodian. Of, I don't know about your 403b, but I certainly you'd have to put the money in an IRA. I believe you could then take that money, give it to those organizations, not pay taxes on the required minimum distribution, and satisfy your philanthropic intent. So I've added I've essentially added a lot of information for you, but. The bottom line is, if you don't want to do the qualified charitable distributions, and frankly, it's probably awfully late this year to do it, take the required minimum distributions from your husband's and or your 403Bs and open an account where you can buy same or similar funds in the same mix and then just leave it alone. That's what I would do if I were in your shoes. And then if I take what I've already paid taxes off, on and reinvest it then when i take that money out i don't have to pay taxes on it right well you pay a different kind of tax you then you wouldn't have when you take money out if you've held those funds for a year or longer if they come out as a profit you pay what are called what's called long-term capital gains rates which is much much lower than the income tax rate now these funds are going to The funds are going to be paying dividends if they own stocks or they own bonds, but you should just reinvest those to grow, to compound your growth. And then in the future, when you want money out, you can take it out at the much lower long-term capital gains tax rate, Gene. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Carl, for your time, and I enjoy listening to you. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Good luck and happy holidays. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's the text. Carl, now that college football is taking a break, I can now listen real time. That is so rude. Carl, now that college football is taking a break, I can now listen real time instead of post and listen to the podcast. In an equity portfolio that is diversified, what do you recommend as a holding percentage for mid and small all small cap index funds? Perhaps 8 to 12% each. First of all, you've identified something that, that for people like you, if you ask this kind of question, you pay attention to your investments. You're what's called a sophisticated investor. For people who just want to take the biggest broad swath, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that, a total stock market index would be great. But for people who want to do a little more slicing and dicing, one of the areas that is to some degree in my experience overlooked is the mid-cap area. And, and there, I've seen data to indicate that the long-term returns on mid-caps can be quite attractive. So if you're going to buy a, a broad, say a Russell mid-cap index or a Vanguard mid-cap index, 
eight to twelve percent in each of those. In an equity portfolio, as you imply, still leaves you. If you even put twelve percent in each of them, still leaves you. So that's twenty-four percent. You still have seventy-one percent to put elsewhere, and you'd want to, of course, have an S and P five hundred or a total stock uh, index. And then, in addition to that, you would want to have some international as well. So I think to answer your question, it's a long way to answer your question. But I think that the answer is yes, that seems like a reasonable thing to do. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's another text. Carl, a lot of thought goes into what age to start withdrawing one Social Security benefit. The last time I did the calculation, for me personally, it was suggested I wait till age 70, which will be in 2032. I'll see if I can read this because the text kind of breaks up here. I'd like hearing that the Social Security may have to reduce their payouts. So I suspect I'm hearing that Social Security may have to reduce their payouts due to not being properly funded. Should I re-examine the calculation given that possibility? That is a really interesting question. And of course, you're asking yourself and for me to predict the future. I have said many times here on the air that the Social Security shortfall can easily be fixed by raising the full retirement age by lifting the cap on how much of earned income is subject to Social Security. Now, the hard part is nobody in the elected office wants to do that because they want to stay in elected office and we'd kick them out. That's what they think. So there's going to be increased pressure on Social Security. I happen to think it is such a powerful and popular program that the odds that the benefits will be reduced are very, very slim indeed. That's nine years. to see 2023. That's nine years from now. I would tell you that I would do nothing today. I would continue to watch it with more than great interest and see how Congress is going to do with it. Because right now, it's frankly off the radar, and both parties are promising never to touch Social Security, but neither of them have come up with a solution to the problem. I think the solutions are straightforward. I think they're out there, and I think eventually they're going to have to do that because reducing people's future benefits is such a political non-starter. So if I were in your shoes, I'd sit tight. I wouldn't do anything. I'd pay close attention to the news, and I suspect there'll be another way to deal with this. We're at the bottom of the hour. It's a great time for you to call or text. We have all of our lines available at 512-836-0590. Stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon for a bit longer than a half, actually, a bit shorter than a half hour. So if you've been thinking of calling or texting, great time to do it now at 512-836-0590. You may listen online at newsradioklbj.com, and you can also download SoundCloud for free and listen to all of our previous shows. And this Thursday, after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512 836 0590. Here's a text. Carl, 
If the teacher is under her, this refers to the woman who called about her deceased husband's uh, 403Bs and hers, I believe. Carl, if the teacher is under 59 and a half and needs some of the money in her husband's 403Bs, I believe she can transfer one or both of them to an inherited IRA. This is one of the exceptions to the SECURE Act that allows her to stretch the IRA. She will have to take required minimum distributions, will not pay the year but will not pay the early withdrawal penalty. If, if you mentioned this, I apologize. No, I didn't mention this. Very interesting what this person is saying because right now when you have an inherited IRA, typically you have to, have, you have to take the money out within three, I beg your pardon, within 10 years. Now, this is a spousal IRA, so this person says that she or he believes that the teacher can transfer one or both of those 403B plans into an inherited IRA, and this is one of the exceptions to the SECURE Act 2.0 that allows her to stretch the IRA, meaning take it out over her life expectancy. She will have to take required minimum distributions but not pay the early withdrawal penalty. I had assumed she was over 70 and a half, but but that may have been my mistake. Thanks for the information. We have really smart listeners. We'll be sending out IQ tests to all the listeners sometime next week. 512-836-0590. All right. Bloviation time. This is exciting. Here's something else that's going to be happening potentially to you if you own mutual funds, actively manage mutual funds, and you own them in your own personal or taxable or brokerage account. This is the time of year when capital gains distributions are coming out. Whoops, I see that I have a text, and as you know, I take those before I bloviate. I know you're deeply disappointed, so let's see what this one has to say. Okay. Hi, Carl. A younger family member is seeking advice and considering investing via J.P. Morgan Private Client. I am familiar with the products offered from the regular brokerage firms, but never heard of these, maybe. Funds suggested to him are HLEND that invest in private credit non-exchange traded businesses development companies, BREIT, Private Income Focused Fund, and S&P 500 Tax Smart, an active management twist to the familiar index. All comes with their own risks, of course. So while I'm not necessarily familiar with all of these, there is one thing that is that is unique about them and has become, I don't know about the amount of assets going in, but certainly I'm constantly, shall we say, bombarded with opportunities like this. So for example, let's see this private credit non-exchange traded business development company. H-L-E-N-D. I guess the first thing I would want to know is what is the liquidity feature? Because there are more and more private credit type deals coming out, and they typically come with with not daily liquidity, typically perhaps a quarterly liquidity, but also there's a limit as to how much they are required to pay out. I think this is a big deal. So I would first want to know, I'm a big fan of daily liquidity. I think it allows for unexpected expenses. Also, it allows for not, when I say active asset management, I don't mean trading, but over time, 
you may want to add a commodity or you may want to reduce your real estate exposure or whatever the case is. So while I'm not specifically familiar with this, uh, I would be I would want to do some real research on um, the liquidity. I suspect there's not going to be a lot of track record on this uh, just because of the novel nature of it. And then the BREIT, Private Income Focused Fund, there was... I think it was from Blackstone, but don't hold me to that. A situation where there were last year there was a lot more redemptions than there was uh, capital to put out, and so not everybody got all the money that they wanted. Um, and that's just kind of the old Roach Motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. I, I get nervous about that. Uh, so for what it's worth, and then the S and P Tax Smart, an active management twist of familiar index. Uh, again. Uh, these are different kinds of approaches, uh, probably with shorter track records. I'd want to look at what their true expenses are because over long periods of time, uh, expenses really, really eat into returns. And when it says uh, tax smart, the S&P 500, uh, if you buy it in an exchange-traded fund or frankly even in an open-end 40-act fund, is about as tax-efficient as I can think of. Um, uh, periodically there's a rebalance, but S&P does, but I've never seen that to be a significant tax consequence to the shareholder. And of course, the underlying stocks in the index pay dividends and those, those you reinvest, but that's taxable income. So when I see the term tax smart, I really, really want to understand how it's different from the S&P 500. Uh, and how is its performance in up and down markets compared to the S&P 500? And what is its expense or expense ratio compared to the S&P 500, like the SPY? That's a good way to get started on it. So I would, I, I, first of all, I'm not negative on, on J.P. Morgan wealth management. I don't have an opinion. But I would want to look very carefully at these things before I jumped in. Thanks for the text. 512 Eight three six zero five ninety. Here's another text. Let's see here. Clearly, you like big government. <laughs> I love big government. Bring it on. Clearly, you like big government. Could you at least admit that a pay-as-you-go retirement plan like Social Security is insane? And rather than jacking up taxes to the sky, a better way would be private accounts with actual investments instead like Galveston teachers have instead, which not only isn't a giant Ponzi scheme, but also pays eight times higher benefits from a lifetime of compound interest. Well, first of all, Social Security is not a Ponzi scheme. It's also not designed as an investment. Money goes in from people, from working people, and it comes out to people who qualify. Would I like a, a private plan? You bet I would. In fact, when President George W. Bush was in office, he really wanted to do that. Guess what? There wasn't congressional support for it. So what I think, what I would like in addition is a, what I would call, a, mandatory is the wrong term, but where you, everybody is in a, an IRA type investment. You have to opt out of it. Uh, because right now, a huge number of people have no retirement plans whatsoever. And if you could make it so that it was part of the law that everybody, unless they opted out, had money put away into uh, an IRA-type vehicle, 
they don't pay taxes on the contribution, and uh, they would have blockade from taking it out early to go off and spend it on a new truck, for example. And we could begin to build some savings for individuals in the country who don't have it today and not depend on living on Social Security. And there's, there's data, and very heavy data, that in the old days when 401k plans were invented, you had to affirmatively decide to go into the plan. And luckily, people like Richard Thaler, who got a PhD, who, who got a Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral finance, and Dan Kahneman, helped convince Congress to do it the other way, so that you could you go to work, the the plan is there, your employer has a plan, and you're automatically enrolled. You have to raise your hand to say, no, I don't want to be enrolled in the plan. The participation rate with just that one change was significant. I know this because I just chaired a conference in Colorado, and Richard Thaler was one of the speakers, and he talked about how human behavior affects investment decisions. So I don't like big government. Uh, I sure wish my streets and roads existed. I'm kind of in favor of uh, a few things, like a military. I'd be okay with that. But I think as it regards retirement plans, there are other alternatives out there in addition to, but not substituting for, Social Security. Thanks for the text. Oh, time for me to take a break. We're down to our last quarter hour. If you've been thinking of calling or texting, 512-836-0590. When I return, I will visit with Judy. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for another 12 minutes. If you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Judy, you're on the air. How many? No more Judy. Okay, Judy dropped off. Here is a text. Carl, international funds have taken it on the chin for a few years. What catalysts might turn these undervalued investments around, in your opinion? Well, I've been on the wrong side of this trade uh, for a long time because uh, it just seems logical to me when over 50% of the world's public companies are headquartered outside the United States, that to turn our backs on that opportunity set as investors just doesn't make sense to me. I've done enough study, and I've been around long enough, as you all know, to lose money in every conceivable asset class, that these periods of outperformance of domestic versus international last for period, can last for long periods of time. But it also turns out that periods of outperformance of international can outperform domestic for a long time, and that there's a proven domestic bias. That would be people who live in the U.K. tend to have overweighting to U.K. stocks. So it's very common for people to be overweighted in U.S. stocks. I think there are possibly two or three catalysts. You make a really good point when you say these undervalued investments. I can't find a valuation 
criterion where international stocks are equal to or more expensive in valuations than domestic stocks. So what will happen? Not the world, perhaps, but certainly Europe, based on my understanding, is in a slow growth or a recessionary uh, period. The German, the German company, Germany is, and that's the largest engine of economic growth in the European Union. And they're in a recession, based on my reading. As you know, stocks are a discounting. The equity market is a discounting mechanism. And you're not going to get a bell saying, now's the time to get in. But I would suggest that given the combination of current low valuations and pessimism about international stocks, this is an excellent time to begin to own them. I think the, historically what happens is that you have a weakening of the dollar, which makes foreign stocks more attractive to American investors, and you have the beginning of growth abroad, which then makes those valuation, future valuations look very attractive. I don't see the, I mean, the dollar has weakened recently. Uh, I think, frankly, with government debt and the U.S. continuing to grow, that's going to be pressure on the dollar. With other countries looking to diversify their trading currency, I think that could be a pressure on the dollar. Uh, I think uh, rising federal budget deficit and increasing interest cost to the federal government may cause rates to be higher for longer. That could be pressure on the dollar. And so, and you know, the uh, the offset of that is when there's global disorder like we have now, and central banks are looking for safety, the the first trade is still to buy U.S. Treasuries. So I don't know when this is going to turn around. I think a weaker dollar and the beginning of signs that the recessionary forces are bottoming in places like Western Europe will probably be the kinds of things that will cause European and international stocks to do well. Having said that, a moment about emerging markets. So for years, there was an, in my, a misconception that emerging markets were the place to be because of pretty fundamentally attractive reasons. The, typically, these countries had a uh, growing middle class. Uh, they tended to be much younger than the European and North American uh, countries, and so they had much less health care uh, expense and lower public pension, like Social Security expense. And all of those things were true. The sad thing was that many of the countries are very uh, commodity-dependent, uh, or they may they may be uh, large importers, and so they're subject to uh, increased costs in that regard. And then there's always a political risk. So uh, in this conference I referenced earlier uh, that I was at uh, last week, uh, the one of the speakers who has spent a lot of her career in the CIA basically said, China's our enemy. Um, and if you invest in a country that's autocratic and at any moment uh, the people in charge can change the rules, that's a whole other layer of risk. There's no question that as a result there's value in emerging markets. There's probably value, I'm not an expert, in Chinese equities. But things can go south very quickly. And the other thing that I've observed is even if – Emerging markets were not in a period of global disorder. 
when investors get scared and what's called a risk off trade happens, typically emerging markets do worse than developed markets. They all go down. Think about the global financial crisis, and you had U.S. equities down about 40% in 2008, international equities down about 50%, but you had emerging markets down even more than that. And when you have these large drawdowns, they call them, it, the math is really ugly. You're down 40%. You've got to make 66% to come back. If you're down 50%, you have to make 100% to come back. So I would focus on the developed international markets. And then, as always with equities, you decide whether or not you're interested in indexing or you want active management. If you're interested in indexing, that's fine. There are ETFs out there that will meet your needs or cheap and tax efficient. Or if you're interested in international, then you have to decide, just like you do in domestic, are you looking for funds that historically have outperformed on the upside when there's a tailwind for international stocks or have performed better on the downside when uh, things are going down? I'll give you an example. I'm not going to name the fund. As you know, I don't do that on Money Talk. But I'm familiar with an international fund that's actively managed that tends to be very conservative and outperform on the downside. So, for example, the best way to compare that is to look at 2021, 2022, and year to date. And here I'm using, uh, I, and you can do this too. I look at the Morningstar category, and that's that's you know that's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And I look at in the category, the ranking, how the fund performed versus its peer group. And this fund, when 2021 was a was a good year for equities, this fund was up, but it ranked 90th, where one's the best and 100's the worst. You go, well, I don't think that's for me. But then you have last year where you had across-the-board declines in equities as well as fixed income, and the fund went to three. That's like going from getting an F to getting an A. And now this year, where the VXUS is up 10.58%, this fund's up 7.35%, which makes it rank 92. So am I going to own that if I'm looking to pair that with an index and I'm trying to cushion the downside, the answer is yes. On the other hand, if I'm looking, I'm perfectly happy with an international index and then I'd like to engage someone to manage money for a portion of my international allocation. So when we have good times, it does even better than the index. Then I'm looking for a very different return type of calculation. Typically, you would have an international growth fund for that second kind and an international value for the first kind. So my personal allocation for equities is about 25% international. I have a heavier weighting in indexes, you would presume, but I still have a 5% weighting in this fund that tends to outperform on the downside. That's a, a great question. You're listening to Money Talk, and I'm going to finish with this little uh, item, which is capital gains distributions from actively managed funds. Every year, funds are required if they have added up their stock sales and they ended up with a net gain after they have balanced their portfolios, they've got to distribute that to you. You wisely reinvest the dividends and capital gains. But you check your fund one day and the net asset value, that's the price per share, has fallen sharply. And you say, what the heck is going on? Or if you have an advisor, you ask her, what the heck is going on? 
when that capital gain is is paid, the value of your shares drop by the amount of that capital gain distribution. But you reinvest it at this new lower price, so you have no value impact as it regards the value of your investment, and you've reinvested the capital gain. But because that capital gain, let's just make up, let's say it's a big one, 10% of the net asset value, and you started before that and the price per share was $15, and you look one day and it's $13.50, you think, how could it possibly go down that much? It's because it had a 10% capital gain distribution, and you have no net loss to that at all. Well, I want to thank... I want to thank Tate for doing a great job. I almost said Garrett, but I know it's Tate. Thank you, Tate. And I want to thank you for listening and remind you next Saturday after the news at four, be sure and tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 